Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Fundamental Process. It's been a while. Thanks for sticking around. I was inspired by noticing how many patrons have stuck around and also that people are leaving reviews in the iTunes store that they really value and appreciate this podcast. In my transition of going all around the world, Peru, England, Italy, now I'm staying more permanently here in Italy. Very happy about that. And I am devoting part of my new rootedness to bringing out new content to you guys. Longtime listener Brian mentioned that there had been this great sense of development and progress leading up, and then all of a sudden, just Egypt, and then silence. So I do apologize to everyone for being so quiet for so long. Thank you for sticking with me. There's lots more content to come. In addition to continuing with the trajectory that we've been building all along here, exploring the development of modernism. So this sidetrack into Egypt is now, for this episode, going into Boulay. Trust me, it's related. And it's going to go from that on towards Corbusier and geometry, and then resuming the typical narrative. So I hope you enjoy that. Also, for anyone interested... There is a new YouTube channel I have for more kind of relaxed and fun things called This Is Not a Pipe. So without further ado, I give you a rather intense, hope you like it, we're a swing for the fences with this one in uh, Thoughts on Boulet. Discourse on a moving boundary, the metaphysical frontier buried within Boulet's Newtonian cenotaph. Humano capiti cervicam pictor equinam jungere sivelit, as if a painter tried to join the neck of a horse to the head of a man. Horace, the art of poetry. That Latin quote appears near the end of a 1715 to 16 correspondence instigated by the philosopher and House of Brunswick court historian Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Left to answer him was the scholar and Anglican clergyman Samuel Clark, a close associate of Isaac Newton's. The Leibniz-Clark debate revolved mainly around theological and metaphysical implications of theory put forward in Newton's Philosophie Naturalis Principia Mathematica, the three-volume work is commonly known today as the Principia, in which notions of absolute space, Newton's laws of motion, and the principle of universal gravitation are laid plain. Within the correspondence, what would shortly become the fault line between physics and metaphysics, science and religion, the objective and subjective, is vigorously debated. Seventy years later, architect Étienne-Louis Boulet attempted to didactically express the tensions within this debate in the unbuilt Cenotaph to Newton, a plan for an empty tomb, his allegorical paper monument to the physicist. Quoting Horace's conceptual division of poetry into the representational versus the fantastical, Leibniz raises the necessity of delimiting logical fallacies, which 
he calls paralogisms, which arise out of preconceived notions from logical theories that correspond with what occurs in the intersubjective world. Newton's empirical investigations had revealed what Galileo had only hinted at, a unity in nature, a new monism. The old duality of Aristotelian physics where cosmic motion was circular and terrestrial motion was rectilinear was laying aside. However, Newton took that step by postulating an inexplicable new force, gravity. Newton had no physical explanation for gravity, and indeed, its true properties elude some of the best minds of physics today, but the presence of pure divinity in a vacuum, activating the alarm vital of all matter, suited his theological preconceptions. Naming directly what Newton was implying, Leibniz stated, Hence, some have believed it, the vacuum, to be God himself. Vacuum, as proposed by Newton, was infinitely void of matter. It was, however, full of the infinite nature of a God that was thereby made more separate from the non-void world of material, but still served to animate that physical world. Leibniz pointed out that in such a situation, the metaphysical duality of the prime mover of celestial spheres versus sublunar angular motion which accompanied the obsolete Aristotelian physics had not been solved, but only displaced. To be successful as an encompassing philosophical reference, the renderings of Boulet's unbuilt memorial of the Cenotaph to Newton, which he included in Plan, Elevation, Section, Cutaway, needed to demonstrate the strengths of the scientist's physical theory while touching upon the metaphysical limits, such as the proposition of a non-material void as the Eye of God, which Leibniz assiduously highlighted in the debate with Clark. By synthesizing what reaches for the knowledge with a desire to venture in honesty towards an incomplete understanding of the unknowable, Boulet's Newtonian cenotaph becomes a didactic instrument whereby the perceptible shadow of what can only be imagined is apprehended. Just as today, when argumentative exchanges over Twitter or email can begin with a polite fiction of civility but steadily gain a passionate momentum in rhetoric, this forceful exchange between Leibniz and Clark opened through a literally diplomatic channel. The correspondence was mediated and translated by Caroline of Ansbach, the new Princess of Wales who was a former pupil of Leibniz's in Hanover. Leibniz was viewed in England with suspicion as a partisan of the Hanoverian royal court that, only a year before, 1714, had successfully negotiated to place the Protestant, George I, on the English throne. Additionally, Leibniz and Newton had developed the calculus independently of one another. To eventually great controversy, 
and differences in scientific opinion at that time tended to become highly political issues, as scientists were often in the direct employ of their respective nobles. This political loyalty regarding major scientific theory applied not only to the English in the case of Newton, but to the French and Dutch Cartesians as well. While Newton advised Clark on how to reply and what topics to cover in this debate, Clark begins by rarely mentioning his scientific advisor by name. In the correspondence as presented by Lemker, printed over 46 pages, Newton is named, always styled pro forma as Sir Isaac Newton, only 18 times. Eleven of those mentions fall from Leibniz's pen, seven come from Clark's, and most of those direct references to Newton come close together late in the correspondence, where the rhetoric of both belligerents has mostly resorted to lists of short, contrapuntal refutation of the other man's arguments. And no, I don't remember if either man at any time called the other an Anabaptist, but it wouldn't surprise me. In contrast to Clark's careful opening replies, Leibniz begins the correspondence by scurrilously claiming that natural religion itself seems to decay in England very much. He names Newton and followers explicitly and repeatedly. The Hanoverian's main point in such an opening was that Newton was placing inappropriate limits on the nature of God by deifying the vacuum and hence making an idol of it, not in a theological sense, but in a philosophical one. This religiously held philosophical persuasion was regarded by Leibniz as not only bad theology or bad metaphysics, but also as haltingly incomplete physics, a vacuum conceptualized as pure absence rather than a special kind of substance was providing Newton with a miraculous solution for a phenomenon, universal gravitation, that he could mathematically describe, but not properly explain. Neither Newton nor Clark would admit that explanation of gravity by deus ex vacui was merely another way of professing a lack of understanding. Clark argued on Newton's behalf for an absolute character of time and space by which the natural laws of God's cosmos acted within a universal and divine frame of reference, using space as God's sense perception, sensorium was the word used, by which all movement within the vacuum of empty space where God would be fully present could be plotted, predicted, and understood. In response to this point, Leibniz points out several metaphysical difficulties stemming from such a premise. As Clark cites the uniformity of this negatively conceived evacuated space, Leibniz responds with an anecdote. Hardly fearing ostentation regarding his rank in society, he recalls an incident in the garden of Herrenhausen when a pupil of his, her Electoral Highness of Hanover, the Scottish-born Princess Sophia, demonstrated superior knowledge of the metaphysics of space over an unnamed ingenious gentleman, and, by implication, 
over Clark and Newton. This gentleman insisted that he could find two leaves that were exactly alike. The princess disbelieved him, and despite much effort, the man could not prove her wrong. Leibniz could have easily felt that a woman of her exceptional education would hardly have needed recourse to the forthcoming era's popularly translated Newtonism for ladies, when she was already a philosophical step ahead of the physicist and his followers. By this anecdotal example, Leibniz claims that Clark and Newton have absolutely no empirical grounds for claiming that the supposedly empty vacuum is uniform throughout, thereby casting doubt upon the allegedly absolute nature of space. Consequently, relative time and space are asserted. Leibniz makes a claim for relative space by pointing out the logical necessity of an infinite regress of frames of reference outside a given object, as well as within it, that a non-relative, an absolute, stance requires. By applying the same logic to an instance rather than a volume, Leibniz postulates relative time. It would be several hundred years before Einstein's discovery of how curvatures of space-time mathematically describe light's path through gravity and necessitate relative space-time that several of the metaphysical shortcomings that Leibniz noticed in Newton's theory could be explained by science. Until then, empirical irregularities, such as the apparent dislocation of stars around the corona of the sun during an eclipse, were ignored. The fomenting Newtonian consensus among Enlightenment philosophers and scientists thus contained doubt and unresolved paralogism, but this was buried and inaccessible, hidden from view. After the publication of the Principia in 1687, with subsequent editions in 1713 and 1726, what had been a debate in natural philosophy between the universal gravitation of Newton and the ethereal vortices of René Descartes began to resolve in favor of the English model. By the 1730s, Voltaire was lampooning these rival scientific loyalties in his stark and extremely influential advocacy for the viewpoints of Newton. It is in the context of this later international consensus around the ideas of Isaac Newton that Étienne-Louis Boulet, who lived from 1728 to 1799, articulated his plans for a memorial to the favored natural philosopher. Yet, however convincing the empirically predictive laws of motion and universal gravitation were, the positions that Newton took against Leibniz in favor of absolute time, absolute space, and the physically strange nature of gravity's application of force through space at a distance, which remains a thorn in the side of theoretical physicists through to today, haunted this apparent age of new certitude with persistent doubts. In his written work, Architecture, Essay on Art, the architect Boulet expresses frustration at this task of representing the unrepresentable. 
at how demonstrably true science rested on the inexplicable. He nearly begins by presenting a paradox as his goal. I have conceived the idea of enveloping you, Newton, with your discovery. That is, as it were, to envelop you in your own self. Boulet also speaks of the deceased Newton in lofty terms as if he were a kind of heroic and secular demigod whose departed soul is situated partway between the mortal sphere of the earth and the purer outer realms of the angels. He writes almost as Paean, O Newton, with the range of your intelligence and the sublime nature of your genius, you have defined the shape of the earth. In the pre-modern European worldview which Newton helped to displace, the upper air of the supposed angelic realm was never observed, but was logically held to be clearer. Just as the lower air at people's feet was dustier and more opaque, a mortal in such rare space, even if helped only by the shoulders of giants, would be expected to see farther, even so far as to see the whole universe at once, and the shape of the world in it. In an attempt to act as a conceptual lens that focuses the light of a mortal's mind, the allegory of the cenotaph, with observers at the base of a sphere, upturns this notion of those above seeing more clearly than those below. The Aristotelian dichotomy of heavens and earth is again dissolved. Now, for those of you who would like to see some images, please head over to fundamentalprocess.com and you'll be able to see these reproductions of the really lovely renderings that Boulet made of this conceptual work. The cenotaph's lamp, representing the knowledge that Newton brought when all was light via his discovery of uniform natural laws, allows the visitor to the memorial to see a representation of the entire universe while standing below at the bottom of a sphere which is, by another relative frame of reference, above, located in a tiny imagined speck on the orbs of Earth and the planets, as represented in the sepulchral lamp of the suspended armillary sphere, and that would be like a large cast-iron framework globe hanging suspended from the roof of this huge sphere surrounded by brick. It's a dome, really. This is an imagining of what later would get built as planetariums. In the middle of that, imagine something like the solar system represented, so that when you're looking up at the canopy of stars, you see a little miniature model of where you are standing. Here, the viewer plays a part in the cenotaph's foundational paradox of the self wrapped in the self. Standing inside the dome and outside the lamp sphere portraying the solar system, the viewer participates in a representation of seeing herself from a great distance. At this moment of introspection, the self-aware viewer 
may conceptualize the same viewer one level in, much like looking at a television screen where you're being filmed from a different angle. Seeing themselves on the armillary sphere's earth, also then recursively looking into the same representation, repeated ad infinitum like the camera pointed at the screen. Leibniz's criticism of absolute space is recapitulated by the recursive infinite regress conceptually implicit in the cognition of the lamp's microcosmic connotations. A sacred mystery on the order of Empedocles' primal sphere, whose center is everywhere and terminal surface is nowhere, is presented. Something akin to the lower dimensional, concretized shadow of the higher dimensional, unrepresentable, takes shape. Reflecting on the physically impossible absurdism in Horace's distinction between representation and fantasy brings to mind a distinction between three-dimensional sculpture and two-dimensional painting. While sculpture must always exist as an object, a two-dimensional visual image has the capacity to represent the physically impossible, as is done in the works of Piranesi or M.C. Escher. Turning away from the sculptural grounding for architecture espoused by his theoretical forebearer Blondel, Boulet writes of How preferable is the fate of painters and men of letters. They are free and independent. They can choose their subjects and follow the bent of their genius. As he finds Newton to be the epitome of the man of genius who shapes the character of his age, the physically unencumbered medium of painting becomes the favored arena for memorializing the architecture of the great man. A distinction between representation and fantasy also belongs to the realm of thought and criticism that divides expository theory from a mere speculation which would string together thoughts from symbol to overdetermined symbol. Citing Horace, Leibniz argued that he was presenting expository theory as an antipode to what he saw as Clark's absurdly concatenated speculation. A speculative approach can generate much of note, but it remains merely deduction unless shown to correspond with external meaning. Such a dichotomy of analysis can easily be found when analyzing the form of the cenotaph, because following Boulet's concept of the relation of logic through idealized form to a corresponding intelligibility in nature, the combinations of basic geometric forms that he assembles have nearly endless logical associations. By assigning its own individual size to each object, nature has enabled us to exercise our critical faculties on all that we see by means of a thousand different comparisons, writes Boulet in his essay on architecture. In my following attempt to understand and explicate the more salient meanings of the chosen forms in the cenotaph, I'm going to focus on what rings truest to the themes of tension between the knowable and the unknowable, the representable and the unrepresentable that lie within Newton's theory 
and the attendant Leibniz-Clark debate as this is what Boulet himself was putting attention to in his own essay. Now, that being said, a close examination of the Newtonian cenotaph could trigger an endless chain of coherent but ridiculous associations due to the rich permutations of comparison that its form allows. In my short time of studying it, several of the more noteworthy connections I have discovered are 1. A directly proportional correlation of the cenotaph to ratios in plan to Aronque Fine's 1549 Les Fiers de Monde, which reveals the dome as rendered in plan to formally coincide with the symbol for a Pythagorean monad. 2. Again in plan, an evocation in Cyprus rows of the paths of the classically known planets. 3. A not only proportional but full-scale and a direct correlation to the Great Pyramid, which illuminates concepts of axial, radial, and rotational symmetry. Interestingly enough, the Great Pyramid uh, itself relates to the Earth, but in this way you can say that because the sphere and the rest of the monument, uh, you can see the website for, for an illustration of this, you can see that the Great Pyramid is almost referenced twice because the pyramid is itself a reference to the, uh, the, the ratio of the two, the polar and the equatorial circumferences of the Earth. Again, this is in harmony with Boulet's statement that he wanted to uh, wrap things in reference to themselves, the Great Pyramid wrapped in a reference to the Great Pyramid, just as he's uh, referencing Newton. Now, this could have been done consciously, but uh, if it wasn't done consciously, it's one of dozens of amazing coincidences about the Great Pyramid. And four, a coincidence to the music of the spheres, articulated in harmonic ratios of the cenotaph's 10-meter module, expounding Leibniz's idea of pre-established harmony that also provides a commentary on the selection of a two-dimensional medium as the realm of Boulay's representation. Now I have this uh, illustrated in audio-visual clip that you can also see at the website. Each of these potential vessels for meaning is itself a legitimate area of interest, to say nothing of all the entertaining scholastic solipsism that study of the cenotaph could formally, symbolically, and numerologically provide. However, what I feel to be the most meaningful observation that I have made is how the form of the monument proscribes a ritual for visiting pilgrims that takes them along a progression through and beyond the known physical dimensions. In that most unfettered medium of Boulet's painting with nature, this procession invites consideration of physical reality outside of the three physical dimensions that we are familiar with, stepping into a four-dimensional awareness. Additional dimensions currently known to physics as hyperspace are used in mathematical modeling, among other things to describe and predict behaviors of particles on the quantum scale that neither classical Newtonian mechanics nor relativity can account for. In this sense, exploring beyond three dimensions has indeed been, as Boulet invoked, to go beyond Newton, even as Newton himself would have wished to do. 
We cannot directly observe dimensions beyond our familiar three, but we can see what four-dimensional objects would be like as shadows. Just as inhabitants of a two-dimensional flatland could observe our shadows or planar surfaces without comprehending our bodies. A shadow of a four-dimensional cube can be a three-dimensional cube, although just as a square shadow of a cube can deform to a rhombus or trapezoid if it is tilted relative to a light source, tilting a four-dimensional cube will deform its 3D shadow. In turn, a 3D cube could cast a shadow in two dimensions as a square could cast a shadow in a one-dimensional line in a flatland. To be a completist in description, a one-dimensional line casts a shadow as a zero-dimensional and infinitely small point. This kind of 2D rendering of an impossible object contains the same kind of indescribable tension as Newton's theory of action at distance through a vacuum and the image of the cenotaph, something that can be acutely and empirically described, but not explained. Yet, the cenotaph contains a sphere, and not a cube. The shadow of a sphere is a circle, no matter how it is rotated. The shadow of a rotating hypersphere is a constant three-dimensional sphere. The increased symmetry of spheres allows for a straightforward representation of a hypersphere, but not the easy perception of four-dimensional shadow epiphenomena that the deformations in a cube's 3D shadow form allow. It is for this reason that the pilgrim to the cenotaph may be invited to proceed through rectilinearly terraced steps up a progression of perceptions through the dimensions we know, the three flat terraces, and go on out to behold the unfamiliar, the round dome. Because indeed, all objects that we see here do exist within four dimensions in a special case. The metaphysical inquiries of Enlightenment thought were saturated in studies of human perception, in what is visible or invisible to us yet remains a fact in the intersubjective world. Ernst Cassirer, in his overview of Enlightenment philosophy commented on the radical epistemological shift that a change in human perception would imply. If we owe our insight into the structural relations of space merely to experience, as Locke and Hume argued, it is not inconceivable that a change of experience, as for instance in the event of an alteration of our psychophysical organization, would affect the whole nature of space. Henceforth, the concept of space is indefatigably pursued through all its ramifications. It is in this milieu of the Enlightenment's revolutions in awareness and the era's concern with the progress of humankind that the potential of Boulay's Newtonian cenotaph as a didactic instrument rings out to its own time and ours 
Because indeed, if what Kassirer is saying is true, change your perception, change the world, in a very literal and physical way. To follow this specific lesson, it is helpful to imagine the pilgrim's path as tracing the dimensions ascending, opposite to the previous explication of shadows descending the dimension. A given individual stands outside the entrance to the cenotaph. The pilgrim's location may be represented by a point. The almost buried Untergang, the walkway beneath the mass of the structure to the central stairway, may be described by a one-dimensional line. Alighting the inner stairs to the platform, the pilgrim is aware of a 2D plane bearing his weight on the level. The rest is darkness or amorphous points of distant light until the sepulchral lamp is illuminated. Here, the eye on the square looks out, then up, and traces the comet-like eccentric orbit of the sphere's semi-horizontal zodiacal ecliptic band, the shadow that would appear straight at the base of viewers' feet curves when followed off in the distance. Indeed, reinforcing relativistic perception, your own shadow would look straight to you, while other people's shadows would look straight to them and curved to you. And as above, so below. As with Newton's discarding of the duality of Aristotelian physics, the same light that renders the sphere of the solar system visible extends to the limits of the universe. All that is enveloped by the monument plays in the same visible light and by the same observable laws. However, there is something that the visitor to the physical cenotaph could never see, something that only the beholder of the physically impossible view of the structure in section could notice. There is the tube, a quatratoris represented in two-dimensional section by two quarter circles. You have to imagine an inner tube, or like a donut, and imagine when the donut is cut, when you cut a section out of the donut, you get a circle. Imagine a line cutting that circle in half. So you cut the, you cut the donut in half by going around in a circle. Then you cut the donut in half by slicing it so you have it above the equator and below the equator. And the kind of outside bit of that, the outside quarter of that, still as circular and whole, you have there. And that type of empty space he has inserted into the monument. Again, this is the brilliance of the device. It's much easier to see visually, so check out the website. As Leibniz had reminded Newton via Clark of what he was overlooking, the cenotaph's rendering does not ignore the fact that even Newton's mechanics could not dissolve all mystery. When the proportional surface areas are translated into hertz, into tones, the quatratoris literally sounds out harmoniously in one 2D metric of the ratios, but plays dissonance in full 3D interval relation to the sphere. Why was this space added to the monument? 
If the void in the structure is merely to save brick material, why is it not a full vault? If it is merely to frame the scale of the Great Pyramid, as it does, why is the curve maintained? Examined thus far, the Quatratoris eludes any coherence when considered in three dimensions. If left at that, and going no further, the quarter tube is representing a fly in the ointment, something which could only make sense if familiar conventions are exceeded. I maintain that the Quatratoris is not merely a deconstructionist device to add inscrutability for its own sake in a cynical claim that we must give up knowing and stop understanding at a specific epistemological frontier. This is a monument to Newton, wrapped in himself. Newton's methodic reasoning may hereby serve to recursively situate Newtonian mechanics as Newtonian mechanics situated the Aristotelian. 20th century theory in physics has, in time, actually borne this situation out in the hyperdimensional models of string theory. The cenotaph can serve as an allegory to such a scientific eclipse. To discover a coherence with the Quatratoris and see how the rendered cenotaph serves this allegory, it is useful to recapitulate the cenotaph pilgrim's journey through the dimensions, but schematized as shapes bisecting objects in their immediately adjacent lower dimension. Think about how each shape would be created, how it would be transformed, how it would be cut. The fourth dimension comes into play and finds coherence for the Quatratoris in a schematic mathematical description of the pilgrim's journey. A one-dimensional instrument punctures a zero-dimensional external viewpoint as the visitor views the memorial from outside. A two-dimensional plane following the pilgrim's entrance traces the path of the viewer. A 3D shape stamps out or imprints the 2D area of the viewing platform. A 4D hypersphere in perfect symmetry casts a shadow as the 3D sphere that the pilgrim only sees with the aid of the lamp's allegoric illumination. However, a hypersphere shadow alone could not illustrate four dimensions, as its symmetry would not leave any empirically detectable trace behind. What would leave such multidimensional evidence? The thing that would leave such multidimensional evidence would be a four-dimensional object as an additional form generator in the above-demonstrated progression, cutting a tube all at once into a quatratoris without leaving any additional marks or cuts, as would indicate a four-dimensional action. A hollow quatratoris is a 3D object that only a 4D knife could cut out while leaving the two remainders whole just as how Willy Wonka's squirrels could mysteriously open walnuts without breaking the nut meat in half. 
Only fictional squirrels with interdimensional paws could ever do such a thing. And so this idea becomes visible in the ascending dimensional morphogenesis of the Newtonian cenotaph. And this way of revolutionizing your thinking about space, which, as Kassirer points out, can revolutionize the universe itself, is part of the intent of Boulet's didactic instrument for architects that this cenotaph is. Such hyperspatial allegory is not limited to my own speculations upon Boulet, string theory, or 20th century children's books. Hyperspace is a concept with deep roots. Dante felt that Beatrice would enter heaven through the same gate wherever she left the sphere of the earth as long as where she went was up. This is how he allegorized the mystery of the sphere of God, which touches the sphere of the earth as a circle whose perimeter is nowhere and center upon the earth is everywhere. That old mythic image is actually a description of a potentially real mathematical object. 20th century hyperdimensional geometry can describe this allegory's image with very precise mathematics. Much to Stephen Hawking's chagrin, gravity is not fully described and explained as a force, still waiting for its coherence to be discovered in a grand unified theory, just as the quatratoris may yet puzzle the observer of Newton's cenotaph. As Cassirer remarked in the earlier quote, just as our senses present phantoms to our perceived reality, they may, just as incorrectly, tell us that such fantastic properties cannot be real until we develop the perception needed to recognize them. Indeed, according to Kassirer, the metaphysical tangles, paralogisms, and unforeseen consequences over which Leibniz and Clark wrestled shifted the problem of reality from mere sensation to judgment. This trajectory leads Enlightenment philosophy to the crisis point that Kant addressed in his critiques. Boulet's cenotaph instigates the potential of infinitely expanding perception and with it new modes of engaging the universe. The synthesis of modern mechanics with the older metaphysics of angelic presence is aimed at. Such a synthesis would be situated outside the normal realms of perception with the determined inner logic of Newton's scientific methods, which, if successful, would allow us to come nearer that infinite vision of the angels. The cenotaph to Newton invites just such a progressive expansion of human capability. And a close student of enlightenment and classical form, doubtless one who would have looked upon Boulet's didactic renderings, the young Jean Genere, who would later change his name to 
the Corbusier, would advance his own perceptions of realized geometry, hoping that this indeed would transform the world and would transform the individuals, leading towards a new architecture. Next time on Fundamental Process.